So uh, turn with me, Colossians 1, verse 24. Again, Paul writing from prison says yet again, as he did back in our study of Philippians, Now I rejoice. I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Hold on to that statement because that's one of the more difficult ideas to really wrestle with in the New Testament. First of all, how is it that Paul is rejoicing in his sufferings? I think we've covered that one in Philippians pretty well. So we're like, ah, we got that. Yes, you may have that. But how is it, though, that he is actually doing this for the sake of the church in Colossians when in the next paragraph he's going to tell us he's never even been there? So how is that happening? And then... What about this idea that he's kind of taking care of in his sufferings and his flesh what was lacking in Jesus's sufferings? And, you know, I think we all think about what it was complete sufficiency in Christ's suffering. So what what is going on here? Why is Paul saying that? If I have time, I'll come back. No, we'll we'll cover this. Verse 25. I have become its servant. That is the servant of the church. By the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. And again, the word mystery, as as we saw, especially used in Ephesians, is not the idea of a whodunit type idea to figure this out. But it is musterion in, in that idea. Thank you for whatever you're about to do up here. Uh, but, but the idea of, of, of musterion is, is the idea that there is a, 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 an intimate plan that God has in store that only can be known because it is so counterintuitive, only can be known through the revelation that God would give us. Oh, did you hit play? Yeah, that, that's fine. Thanks. You can sit there if you want and maybe take care of that stuff so you're not running up the back. If you don't mind. Thanks. Debbie won't bite. She's okay. Again, it's, it's a, big, a big mystery when you think about the grand sweep of world history and the grand sweep of, of God's salvation plan for all people. That this salvation plan is so counterintuitive because it involves... Gentiles. And not only that, but it involves his son. And not only that, but his son would, would not only be, be the one that redeems us all, that we would be in him, but as we'll see in a moment, that he would be in us. This is not something that you would just kind of intuit somehow or another. This is something that has to be clearly revealed. And so now he says, I am revealing the full, uh, like the whole deal. I'm laying all of God's cards on the table for you uh, so that finally we, we can know all that he has in store. It is a mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To the Lord's people, to them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim. That is, Christ is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone 
fully mature in Christ, to this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works within me. And inspired by Paul in this prison, the, the title of this sermon is The Man in the Arena, which seems a bit ironic because he's not in an arena. He's been removed from the arena in some sense, and he is now in a prison, in shackles, still, nonetheless, contending with all fervor for the sake of God, his glory, and his people. And, and as he is contending, he, he talks of the, this beautiful idea that Jesus died, and he died to save the church. And yes, he established the church, Jesus did, but the church still needs to be, as Paul has this pressure upon him, still needs to be built up and still needs to be extended. It's got to be kept strong. It's got to be kept pure and true. And so if anyone, in Paul's mind, is serving the church by widening her borders, strengthening her faith, saving her from errors, well, then that person, and Paul in this case, is doing the work of Christ. And if such work involves sacrifice, then the affliction that, that he is enduring, even while they're in chains, is for the service of the church and is the very same suffering that Christ endured for the church. And as a result, what is now the, the work of, of God and what Paul wants to extend to all people is this idea that Christ can be in you. And Paul contends strenuously, he says, for every man, every woman, everyone, not just you, but now Jew and Gentile, that there is no exclusivity. This would be a completely foreign idea to the Jews that would have heard this message prior to Christ. It also, by the way, well, because Gentiles had no part in the covenant. This is being busted open and expanded. The great unfolding of the fullness of the good news of God. What God's plan has always been from before all ages is now being revealed. I'm sure Paul must have thought, how blessed am I to live in such a time as this, that the full unfolding of all of God's purposes are made known to me. And how can I not, but with all his energy, be able to make it known to every single person? But you know who else would also have actually bristled at the idea that this is for every man, every woman, not just the Jews, but also the philosophers that would have been so active in the, in the uh, city of Colossae. Because uh, in, the, uh, in the philosophers, they would have recognized that wisdom, for them to put it bluntly, wisdom is really not available for all people. Not everyone is going to be able to get it. And, and in many cases, it's only going to be the select few where wisdom lands on fertile soil and in a fertile mind. And so for the philosophers as well, they viewed it as an exclusive little club that would have ever come to know the full purposes of God. And so you see both of those groups in the background. We don't know to what detailed degree, but both of those groups in the background in Colossae trying to influence the good news of Jesus Christ. There's a big Jewish element, as I said, 11,000 Jews by, by one accounting of census there in that small city of Colossae. And, and likewise, many itinerant philosophers bringing the, the newest ideas, fine-sounding ideas uh, to, to their ears there. Uh, and as, as Paul does aspire to, to be able to do that, 
the big thing that he, that he, of course, wants to bring them, as I mentioned, is this idea that every single person now can take part in the great revelation of God that there is a new king. This new king has been manifest in God himself, in Jesus Christ. This new king, with a great love for all people, has not only made himself manifest, announced the full purposes of God, but he has also suffered and died for the sake of the people that he so dearly loves. All of this is being made. This is such good news to Paul that I'm sure he feels like, how could I begin to keep it in? And, and the good news that he wants to bring to everyone is, my first point, guaranteed glory. The way he puts it is, Christ in you, the hope of glory. What is your hope? Your hope for honor? Your hope for deliverance? Your hope for security? Your great hope is not anything about yourself right now. Your great hope and your only great hope is the fact that Christ is in you. But what an immense idea. You know, sometimes we read these words, they just sound like religious words. Something that you would kind of you know, quilt onto a wall hanging. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's nice, Grandma. And then you think no more about it. But if you actually let words like that settle upon your heart and mind, you begin to actually quiver a bit realizing, holy smokes, that was biblical truth. Biblical truth is meant to be applied to me. Wow. And so in, in, in Paul's idea of, of reality that he needs to bring to everybody, his new reality that he now sees, we, we see an identification between him and the king, Jesus, the Messiah, the awaited one, the, the one uh, that, that he would study about and yearn to find out about, and finally coming to know that this king, this Messiah, has not only intimately delivered him, brought him into into the body of Christ, but that all who are in the body of Christ have Christ in them as well. Unspeakable beauties that, that Paul wants to be able to get across. But what he says here with this hope of glory begins to inform the rest of this letter. And, and for us, I think we need to appreciate it for just a moment, this idea of, of, of what this is. Now, in, in being able to bring this guaranteed glory to them all, he is willing to suffer. Now, there's a couple reasons why he's willing to suffer. It was always the idea in Jewish thought that the day of the Messiah, when the Messiah would arrive, it would be accompanied by or attended by a great time of suffering. A great time of suffering for all of Israel. But instead, what it was, as, as Paul saw it unfold, was not a great time of suffering for all of Israel, but a great time of suffering for Israel's Messiah. And so it click to him that I get it. The great deliverance would come after our suffering, but our suffering was done in Jesus. And, and, and so Paul now recognizes too that yes, we've been delivered. Yes, we've come to know all things. Yes, we are now the body of Christ. Yes, it has all been manifest, but, but we still live in this present age. And Christ, even as, as he had that last supper with his apostles, said to them that if this is the way that they treated me, well, then this is the way that they're going to treat you as well. And that if I suffered, then you likewise are going to suffer as well. And so Paul also, I think, had in mind 
that there would ultimately be the ultimate coming of Christ, the, the redemption of all things. That yes, we have this present age and there is deliverance, but there is one more great deliverance to come when Jesus returns in great glory to be able to present us all before him. When, when that now happens, Paul recognizes, we, we likewise also will have a time of suffering. And even when Paul was commissioned by Jesus, remember in Acts chapter 9, when, when he was commissioned by Jesus, uh, there Jesus said to him on the road to Damascus, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. And this is what he then says. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And suffer he did. 2 Corinthians 6, 2 Corinthians 11. It's replete with all of the details of, of Paul's suffering. Uh, Acts 14, even as he was taken out of the city, stoned and left for dead, only to rise up, go back into the city again and keep proclaiming. Why? Because he had not finished the task of making Christ known to every man. He was contending with all energy that Christ was providing him so that every single person, Jew, Gentile, anybody, everybody now is now accessible. What had always been for all of antiquity, the idea that only a select few, whether it be ethnicity of, of the Jews or whether it be by some sort of other selection of the philosophers, none of that is the case anymore. It's been blown wide open and everybody has a chance of being in that special privileged position of being chosen and beautiful before the very eyes of God. This news was so astounding to Paul. How could he not make every effort for it and also to suffer for it and to recognize that Jesus said that the church would likewise suffer because of the counterintuitive message that you would be bringing. That as you would go against the grain, that you would try to change people's minds, change their hearts, their allegiances, and their affections, their agenda, as you went about all of those things, that there would be friction and there would be suffering. And it would be great in many times. And so what Paul is, is doing here is he's not in some way making up for what Christ lacked in his sufferings, but instead he is extending what Christ had done in his sufferings. Because Christ suffered in his body, and now we are the body of Christ. And we likewise, as we are the arms and legs, as we are the voice to the world to let them know about the good news of Jesus, well then it would only make sense that as we go in the same way, and Jesus said, just as I suffered, so you will suffer, Paul says, so now I extend the sufferings of Christ. Not that what he did was deficient in any way, but what now needs to occur as the word continues to spread needs to be completed by us. But Paul also had this idea that the second coming would be attended to by a great deal of suffering. And I think his thought here is why he's encouraged for the Colossians, even though he's not seen them yet, is that, is that perhaps his suffering would be sufficient so that the Colossians would not have to endure so much suffering. That perhaps he would appease those that wanted to see suffering for the sake of this disruptive message of a new king. Disruptive message of universal love that is being poured out. That if he could draw the fire away from the Colossians, well then he'll rejoice. And even though he is suffering dearly in prison and has been beaten and shipwrecked and left for dead. I mean, what a, what a, res what a CV he has of suffering. 
But that he is, is rejoicing that that could be the case. Why? Because what he wants to bring them is the cr- hope of glory, Christ in you, available to all people. Now, I, I call this point guaranteed glory. Why? Because we have trashed the word hope so badly that we might as well even use it anymore. But biblical hope is so radically different than the way that we talk about, I hope the Green Bay Packers could finally get back on course today. Right? I mean... I mean, there's so much like hedging and possibilities and, you know, Hail Mary prayers that are attended to the idea of hoping that the Packers could somehow right the ship and, and get their act back together again. But, but there is hedging and possibility and, and, and no guarantee in what is going to happen with the Packers today. However, however, in Christ and in biblical hope, that is not the case. That is not the idea of, of biblical hope. What, what we have is much more of a, of, a, of a biblical idea of hope used throughout the scripture is, is actually this idea that you're going to be able to have an honor. This glory is an honor that will be yours. But, but hope, biblical hope is life-changing, anxiety-abolishing, joy-injecting, a certainty. A certainty about the future that makes perseverance Little more than logical prudence. Because hope is so certain. It's already been guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He really rose from the grave. And he really ascended. And he's really supervising it all. Why? So that you have no doubt but but guarantee that everything that he has promised is already set in motion. And being certain about future events in such a way that it affects how you live is the idea of hope, biblically. That's your hope. And it's not based on how you did yesterday or today or the vagaries of of, of your righteousness from day to day. It is based on the fact that Christ is in you, that this is available to you, and it's really the case for you, and it's been the case for Paul. And he knows it's the case with such a rock-solid, iron-clad confidence that is given to us in Christ, in the good news. Paul's like, "How, how can I not pour myself out? For this very thing. Jesus. Jesus is real. He's been made known to me. I need to make him known to all people. He's been made known to you. And that's your case. And by the way. You. No matter what. Issues you've ever had. With self-esteem. Or perhaps being passed over. For college acceptance. Passed over for a residency. Passed over for being chief. Passed over for, for promotion. Passed over by that girl that you really thought was meant to be. Whatever it is that that has somehow or another brought you intense discouragement, all of that will fade into meaninglessness when you recognize that you don't have just esteem and not just honor, but something that busts through honor, glory. You are a man not only of honor, a woman not only of honor, But you're a man, you're a woman of the ultimate honor. You can stand with your head high knowing that you have in you the guarantee of glory. And when you stand before the judgment seat, you do so Christ in you, Christ beside you, you in Christ with him ready to present you for that ultimate and great glory that is yours. Christ endured shame. So that you could have honor. And Christ went through all the horrible uncertainties of this life. So that you could have certainty. 
Not only in this life, but in the life to come. But why, why is it that Paul wants to do this? The other reason why Paul wants to do this, to help everyone not only appropriate to themselves and, and be able to repent and be baptized and to have Christ in you and all that comes from that, but, but so that you could be presented before God for service, he says. He says, he is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? So that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. The word presented is, is used plenty of times in the Bible, but most often it is the idea that somebody is bringing you alongside them, putting you before someone like a king, and now putting you there so that the king can evaluate you and decide whether you are worthy for service in his name. It's, it's what happens in Job 1, as all of the angels come before the Lord, ready to be presented for the work that they are to do in Christ. Interestingly, Satan comes in that chapter as well, in, in, a, in a very uh, different way. Uh, the, the idea of prophets and um, uh, uh, priests being brought before the Lord is all throughout Scripture. As a matter of fact, in Numbers 8, it, it says there of Aaron, Aaron is to present the Levites before the Lord as a wave offering from the Israelites, so they may be ready to do the work of the Lord. Numbers 8, 11. So it, it, when Paul is saying, I want to present you before the Lord, he has in mind a very, very precious ceremonial idea here. That you're being brought before the very throne room of God, and, and there you are, Christ as, as your paraclete, as, as your encourager, Christ beside you to present you before the Lord. And here's the amazing part about it. You can stand before the Lord with confidence. With confidence. Why? Because as, as we just read just a moment ago in Colossians 1.22 in this presentation. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you. Same word present in, in the Greek. To present you holy in his sight. Without blemish and free from accusation. As you're presented before the Lord even now for service, you are before him, and, and Paul's joy is that you're before him, and you're before him without blemish, and whatever anybody wants to accuse you about falls from you. You are Teflon before the Lord because of Jesus and, and the coating that, that he provides to you and in the dwelling that he has within you. And so, of course, Paul is excited about, about, about this very idea, but he presents you fully mature, having arrived. And, and this idea of fully mature is the word teleos. Sometimes the word will say perfect. I want to present you perfect before the Lord. Well, you're like, oh, I'm not perfect yet. I don't want to be before the Lord. Teleos just simply means that you've come to the place that you were always meant to be. There's a, a branch of um, philosophy called tele teleological. There's the teleological uh, kind of system of thought of the creation of the universe. And, and what it means is that there was always an intended uh, destination for all of these things. And so as you sit here, you have a teleos, right? Scott Payne has a teleos right now. And, and his teleos may be different from yours, but he has an intended destination to which he was reborn. He has a destiny to which he has been reborn, and it is God's will for him to head in that very direction. And in and, and him... Fully mature in Christ, arrived at the destination where, where he is always meant to be, arrives there, even now, in Christ, even now, ready to be stand with honor and be ready to accept the service that the Lord has given to him.
You all have that. You, all of this doesn't happen so that you sit on a couch. All of this has happened so that you stand ready to be commissioned by none other than Jesus himself. And I think God knows that we are so insecure at times. Oh, who, me? Who, I'm going to go and reconcile men to God Almighty. Who, me? I think that's why the scriptures are so over the top with helping us to realize you're free from accusation. You are blameless. You are spotless. You are complete. You are mature. You are a made man. You are an honorable woman. You are full of glory. You have Christ in you and you in him. So stand before the Lord and get ready to hear the significance that your life is meant to be. And what is that commission? Go and make disciples of all nations. All nations is just another way of saying the Gentiles, by the way. The same word that is talked about the Gentiles here is the same word that's translated all nations. Go and make disciples of all peoples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've taught you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That's your significance. You no longer have some sort of uh, a kind of just life of waste, a, a life of mundane, a life of the profane. You have been grabbed, interrupted, disrupted by none other than Jesus. Because of his great love with which he loved you, he interrupted your life, has done all of this, presents you now before him. And now you are being conferred with purpose and significance. Do you want to trade that in? Do you want to leave all of that for, for what the flesh might be able to deliver for you? That, that you're going to kind of conjure up some, some sort of meaning for yourself when you have a transcendent purpose that God wants to, to convey upon you? Praise God that, that we've got this. Praise God that we get to live lives of such significance. You know, I think for men in particular, not only do we, do we I think, take great comfort in knowing, yes, I'm confident in Christ and I have great standing and I have great honor. But if all I have is great honor and great standing and I don't have something significant to do with my life, at some point I become a bit bummed and despair of that. But God in His mercy takes care of that as well. And so we are presented for service. And the reason we can be presented for service is because Jesus was presented for service. He was presented as the king of the Jews in mocking. And, and just as Jesus fixed his eyes, we, we fix our eyes on him, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen. Jesus was presented for shame so that you could be presented for honor. Jesus was presented in futility so that you could be presented for significance. Don't let what he has done not have its intended effect. Let's honor the love that he has. Let's honor the belief that he has in you, in me, in us as the body of Christ with rising up to be who it is that he always wants us to be. To be the body of Christ with the purpose of Christ, the mission of Christ, the passion of Christ, the love of Christ. And then finally, and this will be our closing charge, get in the arena. Paul says, he is the one we proclaim, 
admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we do present everyone fully mature in Christ. And then this phrase that he uses, even though he's in chains, he says, to this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works within me. Strenuously contend. I'll come back to that one second. The next verse. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those in Laodicea, for all who have not met me personally. Paul is pouring it out. The, the word contend is the word agon. It's the word that means the arena. It literally means arena. It means the, the place of contest. The place of battle. When it's translated in the New Testament, this idea of the place of contest is, is, is often translated as wrestle, fight, bloody struggle. It's, it's this idea of striving. Striving with all that you have. It's not just getting in the arena, but leaving it all on the field. As a matter of fact, the, the word arena is, is the word for sand as well. Uh, because of the, the great blood that is often accompanied to the bloody contentions. When one contends for something in the arena. And as Paul goes after the significance that has been given to him. He doesn't do it in a half measure. Half measures avail nothing. And you know what? Half measures only bring about discontent. Once we're all in, when we're completely in the arena, that's when life gets exciting. But too many times, even in my own life, I wanted to be normal. I wanted to be a suburbanite. I wanted to have those comforts. But yet I wanted to have my identity in Christ and, and honor it by, by actually living in alignment with life in the arena. And that struggle between the two is, is a deep misery. And, and it's not solved by just trying to make myself feel better and say, well, I've got grace. And you know what? Even though I'm doing like pretty much nothing for Christ all week long, you know, probably haven't even mentioned him to, to people that he has put in my path. Not really set up time to be able to be in Bible studies with those that might be seeking. You know, but, but at least I have the grace of God. Who wants the grace of God in that way? How about the grace of God that has so transformed me and given me such identity and security and, and, and significance that, that it then is the, the very basis of why I leap into the arena. And the very second I leap into the arena, joy accompanies every step of my time there. And it does for every one of us. Nobody comes back from, from times in the arena, from times of agonizomai. Of, of agonizing, as, as Paul says. I, I pour it all out. It's a bloody struggle. It's fourth and one. And I'm going to hit that line with every bit of energy that I have. Anything less would be unworthy of what Christ has done for me. And why do I do that? For you, Christians, Paul says. For you in Colossae. For you in Laodicea. For you in Ephesus. I do it all for you because I know how massive this idea is. There's nothing more important than this. When, when Deb and I lived up in the D.C. area, there's a, a little park dedicated to Teddy Roosevelt right there on the Potomac. And we went down into that park, and it was uh, re really interesting to, to be in there because he's got one of his, his great sayings, and it's the man in the arena, which comes from a longer speech that he gave in Paris. And there he says, it's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred 
by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes up short again and again, because there's no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds. He knows the great enthusiasm, the great devotion. He spends himself in a worthy cause. Who at best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement. And who at worst, if he fails, fails at least while daring greatly. So that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. Paul lays this choice out for us. It's a life that honors Christ, a life of significance, a life of great enthusiasms, great devotions, a life of great daring. Or there is a life where you appropriate grace in a completely dysfunctional manner. Where you become part of the mass, the broad way, the many who know neither victory nor defeat. Cold and timid souls, never trusting, despite the affirmations, despite the, the, the great assurances, and despite the great sacrifice that the Christ has made for us. Christ emptied himself and made, a, made himself nothing for us, humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. Why? So that we now have this life to the full. We now have in community with one another, like-minded people who are looking to dare greatly. So that we have in this, this, this community, people who understand the, the, the high enthusiasms of what it is to be in the arena. There's a simple charge this week, brothers and sisters. Understand what's at stake here. There's nothing bigger than what is being conveyed in these passages of the scripture that are here. Nothing more could be a need for, for being contentious. Let's contend. Let's get in the arena. Let's do no less. Amen.